Very well, let us turn, please, in the Word of God to the book of Revelation again. And we will be moving on to some glorious scenes this morning. Just for the sake of, um, well, for the purpose of continuity, just go to Revelation 14 again, please, verses 12. 12 and 13, Revelation 14, as first reading, says there, Here is the patience or the endurance of the saints. Here are they. They keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Verse 13, And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Write, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. Now go right to the end. Just carefully read, and we'll go down later. Chapter 21, verses 1 to 8. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. You know, just imagine John standing there and that just suddenly broke out before him. What a, what a, what a vision, what a picture. There's a new heaven, there's a new earth, and he's looking out over it and then coming down from heaven. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Oh, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them. They shall be his people and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. He said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Here's the truth of it. He said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcomes shall inherit these things, or inherit all things. I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the fearful, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, warmongers, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And one other reading from the Psalms for you, please. In Psalm 87, His foundation is in the holy mountains. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. Glorious things are spoken of thee, O city of God, Selah. Glorious things are spoken of thee, O city of God, Selah. And that, of course, is the picture. We're seeing something of the glorious things in Revelation chapter 21. We've learnt a lot from this book of Revelation so far, or I have, I trust you have as well. Many, many lessons. In those last verses we looked at, 12 and 13 of chapter 14, Valuable lessons. We learnt in those verses how we should live. Live in a world that's blatantly hostile to God. Live in a world that is full of sin. Where evil seems to be rampant and Satan having a field day. We learnt in verse 12 how to live. And we learnt in verse 13 how it is that we can die. The understanding of death. And we saw it last week, an amazing light, that actually for the Christian, death is a blessing. Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord. Doom and gloom? No, grace and glory. 
And you see, in that first part, we're learning how to live. And in the second part, with the understanding of death, we have a, a complete understanding of how we should die and what it is that lies ahead. You see, in the first one, in verse 11, the lesson to learn as to how to live is to learn and to grasp and to understand the truth of what it means to endure, to learn the lesson of that patience or of that endurance. Here is the patience, the endurance of the saints. And when we talk about endurance, we're talking about that ability to press forward in the face of every difficulty, no matter what there is going on around us in the world or in our personal circumstances, we remain steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. We have that resolute determination, that sense of unshakable faith, that fixing our eye upon the future and continuing in a hostile world with our eye fixed on the Lord and our mind think fixed upon God and a whole outlook concentrated on the world to come whereof we speak. That's it. That's how we live. And we went through, didn't we? How can we endure? Lesson one was, we understand that God himself is always in control. He's always on that throne, you know. He never leaves it. The throne set in heaven was the way the, the section of the scripture opened in Revelation and it hasn't changed. Number one, God is in control. Number two, we understand the world in which we live. Very important. World that's under the judgment of God. A world in which God is fulfilling his purposes despite the activities of Satan. It's a great blessing to understand the world in which you live. In medicine, you know, I always say that the patient is half better when he understands the disease that he's got. <laughs> If you can understand your problem, I can tell you you've already half solved it. Well, the point is we understand the world in which we live. We're not going to be intimidated by it. You know, that was the lesson of that first beast, wasn't it? He was a dreadful-looking creature, terrible. You know, he had the claws like the, the paws like the bear, and then he had teeth like a lion, and then he was like a leopard, and then he had all these heads, and he had, you know, all these crowns all over him, and he, and he had this deadly wound, and the a ghastly-looking creature. But you see, no, no. What we found in chapter 14 was, it says here, here is the patience and faith of the saints. He that leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He that kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. You see, they have some understanding of the day in which they're living that this one who is so brutal and destructive, God will bring that same person into judgment. And it's true. The powers of evil that live by the sword, history shows us, and it will be in the final days that they will perish by the sword. Number one, we're not intimidated. Number two, we must not be deceived by it. That was the lesson of the second beast, you remember? Signs, lies, wonders, marvellous. People worshipped him. They went out after him. And it, he used the ancient weapon of deceit. Now, we live in the world. We understand the world we live in. We're not intimidated by it. We're not here to be deceived by it. My word, it happens over and over. And not, as, not only that, but we understand why we are in it. We're here for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. That's why we're in this world. So, how do we endure? Number one, we understand that God is in control. Number two, we understand something of the world in which we live. And we're not intimidated and we are not deceived. And number three, we understand why we have been left here. That we weren't saved and taken straight to glory. Would have been nice, wouldn't it? Would have saved a lot of pain. <laughs> But it's not like that. We're here for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now look, the final key to the grasping the truth of endurance is to always understand and be looking forward to what lies ahead. That's the key, the ultimate key. You see, you look to the future beyond the present, and you've got an understanding, you're reaching forward towards the prize, the mark, the calling of God on high in Christ Jesus. You're singing those old hymns, you know, there's a land that is fairer than day, and by faith I can see it afar, and the Father is over the way, and he's prepared for me a dwelling place there. That's how you live. You live in the light of heaven, in the light of glory, in the light of the world to come, whereof we speak. I mean, that's how all those witnesses in Hebrews 11, who are the witnesses demonstrating endurance. That's how they pressed forward in their day, facing the difficulties that they had. What were they doing? It says they were looking for a country wherefore God has prepared for them 
a city. Like Abraham of old, he looked for a city whose builder and maker was God. And he spent his life as a pilgrim going through a land of promise which he never actually possessed. But what kept him going was he looked forward. And as the Lord Jesus said, he rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. Fellow Christian, that'll help you to move forward. Look forward to that glorious day, the coming of the Lord. Abraham had it in his heart of that he would come is to be the Messiah and the Savior of the world. But then we go past even all of that and he'll come again in power and in great glory. The world to come whereof we speak. And that's what sustained every one of those pilgrims, those witnesses in Hebrews 11. And it was the very same thing that sustained the Lord Jesus himself in his pathway on earth, wasn't it? Who in view of the joy set before him. What did he do? He endured, you see. He endured the cross. You see, the picture of endurance is so beautiful when he said he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He he set his face, one version says, steadfastly. Another one says, like stone. Another one says he set his face as a flint. He was going to Jerusalem, and he was going to a city, and he knew they were going to shame him. They were going to reject him. They were going to take him outside the city wall, and they were going to kill him. But he still went. Why? He looked past that Jerusalem and that day and stage, and in his heart he could see the joy that was set before him. When, like it says in the psalm, he would approach that city in picture, and the watcher at the gate would say, Lift up your heads, O ye gate." And be ye lifted up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, and the Lord mighty in battle. And then the watcher at the temple would cry out, Who is this King of glory? The answer would come, He's the Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. And the gates of that city will open wide one day in all the splendor of the grandeur of the blessedness of the coming Lord in all his glory. You see... He looked past it all to Jerusalem above, which is, as as Galatians says, which is mother of us all. And he looked forward to that glorious day when we have it in Revelation 21, when that glorious city will come down from heaven, out of heaven, from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And this is exactly where we're moving now into Revelation 21. One, and we're getting a grasp, just a, a grasp of something of what lies ahead. See, Revelation 21 is a picture of our blessings which lie ahead. We've just scraped the surface. We're only going to scrape the surface of it today. But if we can grasp the beauty of it, our hearts will be truly uplifted. What is it that lies ahead in the light of what we've said here? What is it? Answer number one is there's going to be a total eradication of all evil. I mean, can you think of anything better than that for a start with? A total eradication of all evil. It's a bit like what you had when we looked at the judgment of Babylon. It said that Babylon shall be thrown down and shall be found no more at all. The voice of the harper, the musician, the piper, the trumpeter heard no more at all. The craftsman, the millstone heard no more at all. The light of the candle shining No more at all. The voice of the bridegroom of the bride shall be heard. No more at all. Ahead there lies a universe, a new heaven and a new earth, where there's going to be a total eradication of evil. Ahead of us, ahead of us there lies the wonders of eternal blessings, you see. There lies the wonders of an inheritance that fadeth not away, that's incorruptible and it's undefiled and it fades not away. It's a day when this passing world is done, when glory will be settled and secure and never assailed again. This is something that is eternal, that fades not away. We're looking forward to the thing that lies ahead of us, and the thing that lies ahead of us is that glorious city of God. What does it say? Glorious things are spoken of thee, O city of God, Selah. It's a society where God is at rest 
and it's a society where his saints are at home. That's what we read in Revelation chapter 21. And you see, what is it that lies ahead? It's the, and I want you to get this, ahead of us there lies the final revelation. Ahead of us there lies the complete, the full expression, the sheer wonder, magnificence, and power of the display of the love of God. You say we see it now? Yeah, through a little dim window obscurely. We grasp it now? Oh yes, but only in part. And in that day, when he sits on the throne and says, it's done. What's done? I have done my work. I have revealed myself. I have given the full expression of who I am. And in that day when the revelation of God has, as it were, been complete, in that day we will know that God is love. Now, it's not just that he will act lovingly. It's more than that. We will actually discover that his very nature is love. I don't know if you've ever seen this before, because I haven't. <laughs> but when I was looking at it this time, it really struck me. Revelation chapter 21 is really a beautiful love scene of Scripture. It's one of the great climactic scenes of love in the Bible. It shows you love at work, and it shows you love's work. You say, it's a love scene? Well, what gave you that impression? Well, I noticed this beautiful thing, that the holy city comes down out of heaven, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. Now, you, we all love a wedding. You go to the wedding, and, and what have you got an eye for first? What are you really looking out for? You're looking out for the bride, aren't you? That's really what you want to see. See how beautiful she looks. And when you go to a wedding, and particularly, sadly not often today, when that relationship is one of absolute purity, you'll see in that bride a radiancy, a shining like she's never shone before. She's adorned so as to make her beauty foremost. And so she has got eyes for none other but one, and that's going to be her husband. He has no eye for anybody else except for her. And there she is in her beauty on display, adorned for her husband. And it's one of the sweetest and purest pictures of love that we'll see this side of heaven here in Revelation 21. We see it in the glory of the new heavens and the new earth where sin exists no more. How beautiful. Fellow Christian, how beautiful. And I want to just read gently down chapter these few verses and, and show you how love is at work in every single verse. And so I'm just going to do it very lightly for you to take it away and meditate on yourself and we develop later on for the rest of chapter 21. But you read, firstly, in verse number one. And it's quite remarkable. In verse number one, it says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. And there was... No more see. What you've got here is the love of God being expressed in creation. You know there was a first creation? This is the recreation. No, this is the second creation. This is the new heaven. This is the new earth. And in creation, God is expressing himself in love. If you thought about that, I mean, think about the first creation when God, as it were, moved outside of himself and in the display of his own power and glory and wisdom and might and design created a universe which could be inhabited and enjoyed by a creature whom he had made in his own image and after his own likeness, who was made to know God and to enjoy him forever. And God would place that creature in a place of splendid blessing where he could only enjoy, 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 and know God forever. 
What a beautiful act of love from the heart of the Almighty God to create and to give blessing to mankind. Ah, but wait a minute. This is again, going on again. You see what's happening here? He's now doing it, and if the first act of creation was an act of love, this more so, because now he's doing it in the face of the fact that man that he made for his, in his image and after his own likeness has actually rebelled, rejected, become a hater of the God that created him. And for creatures who utterly rejected him, creatures who have actually become his enemies, he is creating something for eternal bliss and joy. And he's doing it this time in infinite grace, and he's doing it in absolute mercy. If this is not the love of God, then what is? You've got to believe after this that God is not only a God who works in love, but he is a God who is love itself. That's the first point, recreation. Love at work in creation. Verse 2, what is it? Prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. Here you've got the love of God in beautification. You see, this bride is made up of people like you and I, sinners, stained with sin, ruined in the fall. But when I rise to worlds unknown, dressed in beauty not my own, then, Lord, shall I fully know, not till then, how much I owe. This is the love of God in beautification of sinners who've been stained and ruined in the fall, but clothed in the beauty of his own dear son. This is God is making something out of us who were nothing. He's making us anew. He's clothing us with a robe of righteousness, pure linen, fine and white, the righteousnesses of the saints. And in his love, he's beautifying sinners such as you and I who are as ugly as sin can only be. This is God in love. God in creation, God in beautification. Go to verse 3. I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. Ah, this is the love of God. And I'm going to say, excuse the alliteration, but it all came to me in about three seconds and it helps me remember it too. In creation, in beautification, now the dwelling place of God is actually with men. And this is the love of of God in habitation. You see, the relationship's restored. The family is set up. And God now pitches his tent, his dwelling place, amongst men. And he's there with us for all eternity. And he's brought us into that relationship, no longer strangers. I will be their God. He will be my people. They shall, I will be their God. He shall be my people. They shall be my people brought back, and he dwells amongst us. He remains there in a relationship of settled permanency. He's not just visiting like he visited the Garden of Eden. He's actually dwelling place, dwelling there now, and making it his permanent home. This is the love of God. Verse 4, And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying, nor any more pain, for the former things have passed away. And if the first one was the love of God in creation, second was the love of God in beautification, then there was the love of God in habitation. Can I say this is the love of God in eradication? Just see that. He's taking things away, and they won't exist anymore. Because what he's taking away in verse 4 are all the consequences of sin. In verse 1, he took away everything that represented the presence of sin. For what happened? The first earth, the first heaven, were passed away. They were stained by sin. They, the heavens weren't clean in his sight. And the earth was already cursed. So he permanently eradicated the very presence of that in which sin had once dwelt and reigned and ruled and completely stained and brought under the curse. No matter how beautiful we have it in today's world, 
Nature is still red and tooth and claw. And there is a sigh in that wind as it moves through the trees and a sob of despair on every wave that dies upon a shore. There's a sense of futility as the cycle of life goes on and the sweetest, prettiest, most brilliantly hued bird in the tree will suddenly have to go for its life for something is coming to eat it. And you get this food chain and this destruction and this cycle of life and it all ends. It's not like that in this day to come. It's all removed. The very presence has been eradicated. The consequences, which is no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more tears, they've passed away. And if that's not enough, when you get to verse 8, the very ones who perpetrate sin, they've also been, I speak carefully, they've been eradicated. This is awful. The fearful, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, the warmongers, the sorcerers, the idolaters, the liars... They all have their part within the lake of fire which burns with fire and brimstone and is described as the second death. Last week we did the death of the non-Christian. It was terrible. Well, this is it the second time round. Now go to verse 5. There's something lovely here. He that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. He said to me, this is a declaration. You see that? Write. Put it in writing. Write. For these words are true. These words are faithful. Hey, right, this is the truth of it. Declaration. And this day Martin Niles is out of a job. Won't need to declare the truth of it. God will. And there'll be no dissenting voice. That's what'll happen when you get down here to verse 5. He'll be out of a job. But I got out of a job in verse 4. Because there's not going to be any more pain. <laughs> but isn't that grand, you see? There is one who healeth all our diseases. And in that glorious day to come, there is one who is truth. And he'll declare it. And he says, you write it down. I mean, imagine living in a world where there was only truth declared. I mean, we live in a world that lives by lies. Does anybody tell the truth anymore? We won't go there, will we? But you're going to live in a world one day, fellow Christians, where there's only truth. God's declared it. And it's been written down. He says, John, don't forget to write this bit down when you write that book I told you to write to those seven churches. Just don't forget to put this bit in. You write it down. This is the declaration of God. You see, we've got the love of God in creation. Beautiful. In beautification. Well, that's lovely. Making something out of me. In habitation, dwelling with us. In eradication. The presence, the consequences, even the perpetrators of sin, completely gone. You see, we're getting to an area of things that is perfect. We're getting into something that is stable. We're getting into a world that can no longer be challenged by sin. We're getting into the truth of something which is quite new. We're not used to seeing it, are we? Because we haven't seen it. But by faith, we can see it afar. And that's where we look this morning. That's why we endure in today's present society. That's why we stand firm with the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. And then you go to verse 6. <clears throat> and in verse 6, what do we have? He said unto me, it is done. I love that. It is done. It's done. The cross, it is finished. That was the work of atonement. It is done. That's all the purposes and plans of God have been brought to their climax. Love has had its full revelation. God is known even as we are known. I am Alpha and Omega. I planned all this in the very beginning. I will have it now at the very End. I have been in control of all that lies between the A and the Z, the beginning and the end. It is done. I will give to him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. This is beautiful. It's like, you know, you, you, you get this painting, and if only I could, I can't paint, but imagine trying to paint this vision here of the the new heavens and the new earth and the heavenly city coming down and one sitting on the throne and everything that disturbs has been removed and everything that's glorious has been put in. And you just imagine if you never knew a thing about the Bible and didn't know much about anything and you came and you saw that picture and you thought, oh, look at that. 
Wouldn't I love to be there? And then God writes underneath his little painting, He that is a thirst, let him come and take of the fountain of the water of life freely. Here is love. It's in the invitation to every guilty sinner that they can come. Creation, beautification, habitation, eradication, declaration, invitation. Our God is a God who says, come unto me, or ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We mentioned that in worship this morning. The picture of a God who embraces a sinner and would make them into a saint, who would beautify them. You see that? And adorn them with a beauty that's not their own. And would love them, not only through time, but for all eternity. This is God and his love. And more than that, it says, he says, I will give them to drink of the fountain of the water of life freely. Now, this is, this is actually more than invitation. This is letting us know and be assured that in that city bright, in those new heavens and that new earth, wherein which we shall dwell with God and God will dwell with us, there will be a continuation of the whole thing, never to run out or come to an end. See, it's the drinking of the water of life freely. This is eternal life. And later in the chapter, there's a river flowing out from the throne of God, the river of the water of life. For God is the source of life. Jesus himself is the giver. And it's that life which is in himself that we have come to partake of and will live in the good of that eternal life which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this is life eternal to know him, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. And that life which comes from God himself will be infused into us and will make us able to live in the new heavens and the new earth and enable us because it comes freely, because it comes like a river from the very throne of God itself that shall never be moved. We'll live forever and forever and forevermore. Blessed be the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You didn't think Revelation 21 was a love scene. <laughs> it is a love scene, you know. This is the day when in 1 Corinthians 13... We are told we won't see any more through a glass darkly. That's what it's like now, isn't it? It's beautiful when we get those gleams, hey? We see those gleams of glory shining from afar sometimes, don't we? But it's always like you're sort of, you've got to blink again, you know? You can't get the film off your eyes. You're just not very clear, but oh, it's there. I can see the shadows. I can see a glimpse, and you want to rub the window clean. That's the idea. We see now through a glass darkly or a, through a dim window obscurely but then it's going to be face to face, right? The marvel of that is it's like, a bit like John 1, and I want to be careful going too far here, but I want you to get it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Let me say it again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was, the literal translation, face to face with God. There's not a cloud between, you see. There's a, a harmony in the Godhead between the Word, between the Son and the Father, they are there face to face, knowing, relating in absolute perfection without a cloud between them. In that glorious day, fellow Christian, you and I will see him face to face without a cloud between. We'll see him face to face not struck with dire amazement, done, but triumphing in grace. And this is the day we're talking about in Revelation. This is love in its final and its fullest expression. This is love in its purest of forms. This is the love of God. This is the God who is love. Can you just grasp that this morning? God, as Scripture says in 1 John, God is love. That's his nature. God's very nature is love. Now, we can only just get a, a little grasp of that. We can't get it all because we are finite and we're talking about the infinite. 
You see, we are actually got fallen sinful natures. It's easier for us by nature to hate than it is to love. But with this inadequacy, we are seeking with God's help to grasp something of the fact that God himself is actually love. Now listen carefully. I want to drop this and see if you can grasp it. If God is love, then love, like God, is eternal. Correct? Yeah. You will never, ever need to worry, and you never, ever need to worry that God will stop loving you. Do you know why? Because actually he never started. What? I've loved you with an everlasting love, with an eternal love. Did God have a beginning? He always was. Did God have a, will God have an ending? He always will be. His love is exactly the same. It always was. Before I knew you, he says, I loved you. All the mystery of the divine mind and the wonder of a God who is love. Now this is so of God whenever you look at him and wherever you see him. You think about God before there was a creation, before there was a visible thing that he could share his love with. Then think of him in the act of creation. And then think of him when the fall and sin came in. And then think of him in the eternal state of his being and existence. And it's always the same. God is love. You want to start there? Before creation, God alone with nothing made, in his own solitary and eternal existence, completely self-existent, he needs no one. He needs nothing outside of himself. He is sufficient, all-sufficient within himself for his continued existence. But we say he's a God of love. You see, and love, love is something that must show itself. It, it must have actions. It must have relationships. It must bless others because that's what love is. That's what love does and love cannot be contained as a passive entity. Now God is alone in his being. God is a God of love. So if God is there alone in his being, does that mean that he was there just loving himself. Oh, perish the thought. That would make God selfish, wouldn't it? God is never selfish. Do you realize the fact that understanding that God is love is one of the greatest proofs of the Trinity, of the triune God? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And when before creation... When there was God and God was love, there was God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They are coexisting in a relationship, in a relationship of perfect unity, a relationship of absolute harmony. It's a relationship of love. God the Father is loving God the Son. In all the wonder and Supreme mystery of that bond of God the Holy Spirit. And the Lord Jesus says there in his prayer in John 17, Father, he says, you've loved me from before the foundation of the world, pre-creation. When God, as it were, existed alone in the awesome majesty of his solitary splendor, triune in the Godhead. Harmony and unity. And that love which exists in harmony, unity, perfection as to create an absolute oneness, that love is actually the definition of what love is and what to love actually means. It's the blueprint. It's the original pattern. It's the great source of all subsequent true love. So you get that pattern. God is love. And there it is before creation. Was God a God of love before creation was one of the questions? Answer is yes. Now there comes creation. <clears throat> and we said before, creation was an act of love. Do you realize that God there in the existing and the, <clears throat> the satisfaction 
of that triune Godhead, <coughs> there came a day when he said, let us make man. Do you know what he said? In our image and after our likeness. What an act of love that was, that he would share something of himself with the creature that he was about to make. Let us make man. He is moving now outside of himself. He is embracing, he is including, he is creating, he is including others. He's giving of himself his power and his wisdom and his design and his skills to create a universe, a universe of complexity, diversity and absolute beauty. And it's there for others to share, to rejoice in. He's going to make a creature that is made to know God and to enjoy him forever, that will have the capacity to have a relationship with a God who is love, giving of himself, not because he needs to. God doesn't need to do this, but because he chooses to do this. And he chooses to do this. Why? Because he is love. Because love does that. It's exactly what love does. So in creation, we've got one of the great witnesses to the fact that God is love. So was God a love? Act God of love at creation? Answer is yes. Then comes sin into the world. And then comes the fall. Now what's going to happen? Well, there's going to be wrath. There's going to be wrath. There never was wrath before because there was nothing for God to be angry about. Why would God be a God of wrath? We're talking about him as a God of love. We dealt with that in detail. He's a God of wrath because he is a God of love. See, sin hurts. Sin destroys. Sin stains. Sin breaks the relationship between God and man. Sin, in other words, is destroying something that God loves and God is now angry because he loves and he sees what is love, he loves as being destroyed and brought down into ruin. The man that he made after his own image and in his own likeness. It's exactly the same idea that we have with the Lord Jesus, you see. The father loves the son. God loves his son. And when he sees rejection of him, he hates that. When people continue to reject him, he ultimately moves in judgment. God loves his people, you see. And all through Revelation, we're finding the wrath of God coming out. And that wrath is because his people, whom he loves, are being brought under persecution and martyrdom. And he moves because he loves. And in righteousness, he acts in judgment. And he's a God of wrath because he is a God of love. Isaiah 28 tells us that Judgment, in other words, wrath, is God's strange work. I used to wonder whatever that meant. Till I woke up to the fact and I saw the meaning of the word strange. It means alien. See, his natural nature, love. But that work which is not, as it were, that fundamental part of his nature in the sense of who he is in his inward being. It's his alien work. He does it because he is a God of love. He does it because there's righteousness and truth that must be maintained. He does it because sin must be done away with. But it is actually his alien or his strange work. So sin comes into the world and what's he going to do? He's a God of love. I mean, he can do one of two things. He could turn around and wipe out the whole thing and start again. I mean, that would have been just. would have been perfectly just. Why did God ever bother with man once he rebelled? Why did he ever take any interest in the world once it was under the curse? Why, why, why? Will he turn away from it totally? Or will he just do what we do in the name of Christian love? This is drivelly stuff. This is vanilla. You know, it's just tasteless. We say, oh, well, you know, we just overlook at this time because, oh, I mean, I mean, Adam couldn't really help. He was having a bad day, wasn't he? And his wife, well, (laughs) I mean, the devil was smart. He looked really good. So let's just overlook. No, you see, that's not. If he were to do that, he would not be a God of love. But because he is a God of love, He does two things. He acted in judgment. He won't go into the detail, but he did, didn't he? But you know what else he did? He acted in a promise. And he made the immediate promise that a saviour would come into the world and destroy that wretched thing called Satan and do away with sin. So when sin came into the world, after creation, was God a God of love? The answer is yes. Now look, you could go on and on like this. One act after another, God is proving that he is love. 
proving by the revelation of the fact that he is triune, that before there ever was a creation, he was a God of love. God is love. At creation, demonstrated so powerfully, God is love. At the fall, demonstrated so clearly that God is love. And he gave the, the promise of redemption. And after that, you read through the scripture, he brought all those sacrifices for sin. And he was reinforcing the promise that he had made in his love. For they brought a sacrifice for sin. And what were they doing? Uh, all the while they were being reminded of that one sacrifice for sin forever. They would come through the Savior that God would provide. Reinforcing the promise. And then after you've gone through all the sacrifices, you can read through all the prophets. And in the prophets, what are they doing? They are enlarging the promise and they are profiling its meaning. You listen to the prophets and they tell you all sorts of things that are happening and all sorts of things that are going to happen. And for then the suddenly they, you, the picture gets clearer, doesn't it? They're not just talking about events. They start to talk about a person, a saviour who's going to be born. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And so on and so on. Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah chapter 53. And in the promises, and in the prophets, the promises are profiled. And then last of all, after all those prophets have silenced, been silenced, last of all, he sends his son, and he sends his son to be the saviour of the world. Does it stop there? Does it stop there? Does the love of God stop at the incarnation, the coming into the world of the Saviour Christ? No. Move on and just, just, just do it in a light hand and yet, and, yet, and yet with a sense of glory about it. From the incarnation, we move to the crucifixion and we go to the cross and we say, did e'er such love and sorrow me? Or thorn compose so rich a crown. Calvary, the place where heaven's love and heaven's justice meet. Where inscribed upon the cross we see in shining letters, God is love. Surely you'd never doubt the, the love of God if you understand the meaning of the cross. All this I have done for thee. Remember? Count von Zinzendorf as he stood before that massive painting in Dresden of the crucifixion and it riveted his attention. He couldn't take his eyes off it. They had to tell him to get out of the building eventually when the, when the exhibition was shut. The art gallery was shut. He was just transfixed by the vision of Christ crucified. Was it for me? For me alone, my Saviour left his glorious throne. The far-flung splendour of the skies, was it for me he came to die? Yes, it was for me, and all for me. Oh, love of God, so great, so free, <clears throat> he came for me. Is that not enough? What about the resurrection? Eh? Was that God in love? Yes. He destroyed him that had the power of death. That is the devil. Oh, that was an act of massive love towards we captive sinners and delivered those of us who were through fear of death for all our lifetimes subject to bondage. The resurrection and its power and its splendor. He took away the gloom from the grave because he broke it. It's power. He went in and he went through and he went out. And is that not enough? Isn't it enough to stand with a fisherman this morning in the boat? And hear Peter say, as he saw Jesus standing on the shore in the light of a glorious resurrection, isn't it enough to say, it is the Lord. God is love. It's true. It's not enough, you know. I haven't finished yet. What about the ascension? Eh? When he, they just, he put his hands out and he blessed them. And as he was blessing them, he departed from them. And he went up into heaven and a cloud received him out of their sight. He had gone in as the captain of our salvation. He had blazed the trail. He had made the way right into glory itself. If he had not gone back there himself, 
in the wonder of his own finished work and sacrifice, there had been no pathway for us to go into glory, into the new heavens and into the new earth, into the very habitation and dwelling place of God, and to see him face to face. But he did exactly that in the ascension. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, and he left behind him the trail, the pathway that we can follow till we reach him inside the veil. This is wonderful stuff, you know. Thrilling. This is our hope. This is why we endure in the present. This is why we're pressing forward towards the mark. This is what faith has grasped. This is what the eye of faith sees every day. When this passing world is done, when is set yon glaring, glowing sun. That's what we live. That's how we live. And in that glorious ascension, there it is. Was a God a God of love at Calvary? Yes. And the resurrection? Yes. The ascension? Yes. Act after act. Act after act. You can never doubt the truth of what John said. God is love. Always for others. Always at cost to himself. And finally, climaxing from the ascension to the fullness. I mean, he went back to heaven and you say, well, it's all over. No, no, the real thing started. <laughs> the basis is laid. The sacrifice has been made. Salvation's secure. Sin has been settled. And he moves on now in his great work of calling a people out who are strangers and pilgrims on the earth and he's making them fellow citizens of the saints and of the household of God and he's making them to be part of himself in the one body. He is building his glorious church and in Revelation 21 we're reaching that scenes of glory, splendor and bliss that lie ahead when it shall be done. A new heaven, a new earth, a bride adorned for her husband, all reason for wrath removed, all presence of evil has gone. Sin, gone. Evil, gone. The stain of sin on a cursed earth, gone. And God creates again in love a universe of bliss beyond the changing sands of time, something that is eternal, a revelation that is final, a glory that is complete. And in the meanwhile, he leaves us to ponder what lies ahead, where in that world of glory, we will forever enjoy the fact and experience the truth and reality that God is love. May he bless his word to us this morning. And send us away cheered, because it's now to watch, to work, to war, and then to rest forever. God bless us all. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, there's a sense of wonder on our hearts this morning. How good is the God we adore? How wonderful the promises that are made. How glorious the work that has been done. And how real is the hope that is set before us. Part us with thy blessing. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, the blessings of the triune God be with our spirit and keep us and protect us in the week that lies ahead until we meet again or until our Lord shall come Amen.